This morning, Matthew 1, I'll read our passage. I'll read verse 1 down through verse 6. This is the word of our Lord. It begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Abinadab and Abinadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This begins the New Testament's first book, the Gospel of Matthew, and it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The first words in this book are the word genealogy, which is the Greek word for Genesis. This is already what the opening book of the Bible was called in the life of Christ and the life of Matthew. For, for the Jews, the Bible opened with the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And the first of those five books, the opening of the Jewish Bible, began with a book called Genesis. Matthew, very much aware that he is writing a new book of beginnings, begins the exact with that title. He begins by calling this the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is a new origin story. The word that's rendered genealogy in English is a word that means story or the history book, if you will. Genesis is the history of the world, the history of the universe, and the history of how Israel came to be. And Matthew will open the New Testament, will open the new covenant with a new Genesis, a new beginning, a new story. And the story begins not with the creation of the world, but with the God who made the world becoming man, taking on human flesh, Jesus by name, Christ by title, Jesus the Messiah, and this will be his origin story. The book of Genesis begins with God creating the universe and it ends with Israel in Egypt. The book of Matthew begins with God coming to his world and it ends with his new Israel, his new people going into the world, going into the nations. Matthew 28, go therefore into all the worlds preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel written, and in a very real way, the new story of beginnings. But it begins in a far away place, in a far away world. It begins with Abraham. Now, this is, this is a different world than we live in. Let me tell you about the world during the life of Abraham. There was 25 million people in the whole world back then. That is less than the population of California over the whole world. <laughs> it was spread out. There were no nations to speak of back then. There were ethnic groups. There was language division. In Genesis 10, the continents begin to separate. In Genesis 11, the languages separate. Genesis 12 is Abraham. There was no laws in the world back then. There was no real effective government. Having just been established in Genesis 9, government had not yet gotten its grip on the world. Conversely, the life expectancy was 140 years old or so. Less laws, less government, longer life expectancy. <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> there was no currency in the world back then. There was no money. 
There's no concept of, of banks or of notes, of coins or of cash. You bought something with a goat. In fact, we'll see someone this morning who buys something with a goat <laughs> or with crops. As I mentioned, there were no laws, so there was no law enforcement. There was very much anarchy. If you were to amass possessions for yourself, you needed slaves to defend them, which Abraham had, remember? When Lot was kidnapped, Abraham took 400 of his slaves to go fetch him back. That's this world. There was nothing, there was no empires in the world back then. This is the first world empire is the Shang Dynasty in China. This is 500 years before that. Five centuries before there was anything in the world that could be called an empire. There's no cities in that sense. You would live where you had a well. And there were villages built around watering holes, towns built around a collection of villages, but there was nothing like we would think of as a city today. In fact, Abraham will spend much of his life looking for a well. There's a big part of Abraham's story is, is trying to get this well from Abinadab. Or Abimelech, that's the guy's name. Abraham ends up mortgaging his wife to get a well from her. That's this world. It jumps, this genealogy does. We didn't read all of it, but it goes all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ as alluded to in verse one. The Roman Empire, what a different world that was. The Roman Empire, 10 times the world population as it was in Abraham's life. But still, about the population of the United States lived in the world then. Beyond that, there were laws, there were empires, there was currency, there were coins in the Roman Empire, there were cities, life expectancy, 25 years old in the Roman Empire, 50% infant mortality, which means if you survived infancy, you could live to be 50 years old perhaps, but only half of the population did that. This genealogy takes us from the world of Abraham into the world of Christ And I hope that it takes it all the way to your own life. I hope you see the effect this genealogy has on you. And that could sound like a strange thing to say. The effect that a genealogy of somebody else, not in your family, has on you. Have you ever read an interesting genealogy? Neither have I. And yet here we find ourselves. And so I hope to make this an interesting story for you. As I mentioned, it begins in verse one with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This will be his story. It's broken up into three groups of 14 names. Jog your eyes down to verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so we'll have three groups of 14 names. Four of these names will be women and we'll see all four of them this morning. As I mentioned, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is his story. It's not the story of those 14 times three names. This is a story of one person and one name, Jesus Christ. And to make that point clear, the genealogy goes in the opposite direction that genealogies are supposed to go. For example, if I told you what's your genealogy, you would start with you and then go to your parents and then go to your grandparents and then go to, well, Americans don't remember their great-grandparents' names even, but you would go that direction. Not so this genealogy. Do you notice this genealogy goes the opposite direction? It starts with Abraham and goes really forward through time, backwards through the genealogy because it's teleological. It's building towards the end. It's building towards Jesus Christ. And that will be the outline this morning, the description of the Savior from this genealogy. The Savior will be, and I'll give you three descriptions of the Savior. As I mentioned, this is a list of 14 
names that we'll look at this morning and we'll look at the next 14 during the kingship next week and the final 14 exile to Christ in our third week in this study. But of these 14 names, four women, the focus is on Jesus Christ. Now there are two covenants in the background here. You see this in verse one, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew pulls out these two names at the beginning because these are the two covenants that drive the identity of the Savior. The first is the Abrahamic covenant that we'll look at this morning. The second is the Davidic covenant that the Savior will be a king. We'll look at it next week. But let's start with the first one, the Abrahamic covenant. It means that the Savior will be a Jew. He will be a Jew. And that is again why verse two starts with Abraham. Unlike Luke's, Luke's genealogy, Luke's genealogy goes to Adam because Luke is writing to Gentiles in Luke chapter four to Gentiles and he wants to prove to you that Jesus descends from Adam, that he is in fact a real human. Matthew is writing to Jews. Obviously Jesus is going to be human. That's not their concern. Their concern, the Jewish concern is can he trace himself back into Israel? And Matthew says, oh, I can do one better than tracing his Jewish ancestry. I can tell you what tribe he's from. I can trace him back to Abraham himself. This is to establish that the Savior is Jewish. Now, you know this is the promise in the Old Testament, but it's worth repeating When sin enters the world, the very first promise of the Bible, the first good news of the Bible is that God will give a savior to the world born to Adam, born to Adam's seed. The savior will be a person. And so the rest of the Old Testament unfolds like a mystery novel. And you're reading it going, where is the savior? Where is he? Who is this seed? Who is the offspring? It's a little bit like reading a Where's Waldo book. Do you remember those? (laughs) You're searching through the pages of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus going, where is the Christ? Where is he? You get off of the ark and you see the table of nations in Genesis 10 and you're you're wondering which nation will have the savior and the languages divide in Genesis 11. Which language group will have the savior? And then you get to Genesis 12 and the answer is none of them. None of them get the savior. The savior is not gonna go to this nation or that nation or this language or that language. The savior is going to go to a new group of people. A new nation will be born and that nation will get the savior, namely the Jews. The savior will be Jewish. And that's why this whole genealogy, it is like a who's who of Israel. This is the kind of the essential Israel genealogy right here. Beginning with Abraham, the first Jew. He was called out of the land of Chaldeans, a foreign nation, and he was said to leave those people. And when you left a nation back then, it was not like today where, you know, I moved from California to Virginia. You know, it's far, but it's not this far. (laughs) There is Skype, and there is emails, and there is FaceTime, and there is Facebook, and there is Facelift in California, and there's all those other things. (laughs) Back then, when you leave, there's no communication. And there's no laws. You're stepping out into a nomadic world where there is Bedouins and villains. And if you're going to build your life, you need a well. And then you're not going to leave it. And Abraham becomes a nomad, wandering around with only a promise from God that from him would come the Savior. Abraham remarkably has Isaac. You remember the story. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. And they had Isaac. Isaac was a godly man who wanted a a covenant-keeping wife and had to fetch Rebekah. There's a whole crazy story with that, which we'll look at later this morning. From Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob is, of course, 
uh, going to be renamed Israel. He is the father of the 12 tribes. From Abraham, remember, had more than one child. Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael, and the covenant did not go to Ishmael. The promise did not go to Ishmael. It went to Isaac. Isaac, he will have children too, in particular Jacob and Esau. The promise does not go to Esau. The promise goes to the younger brother, Jacob. Jacob, in turn, will have 12 children. And here is where we finally break the pattern in the genealogy in verse 2. The first people are father, son, father, son. Then you get to Jacob. Jacob and all his brothers. (laughs) He's going to have Judah and all of those kids. There will be 12 children to Jacob. 12. And here the promise goes not to one individual. In a sense, the promise goes to all 12. There will be 12 tribes and all 12 will be real Israel. Remember Ishmael, as he went away, he would not be real Israel. Esau, he forfeited his inheritance for a bowl of soup, but not so with Jacob's kids. All 12 of his kids will be real Israel. All the 12 tribes will come from him, but only one of his kids will have the promise of the Savior, kid number four. Why four? No idea. God chose four. And as you meet Judah, is Judah the godliest of the kids? No, no, my friends. Oh, no. Judah has a very perverse life, but the promise goes to him. Judah has his own problem finding children. Uh, Judah, and we'll look more at that story this morning, but he then in turn has Perez. Perez was also a twin. Perez born with his twin brother, noted here in verse 3, Zerah. Perez and Zerah born together by Tamar. Again, we're breaking a pattern here of a genealogy. Matthew is drawing your attention to these particular people that Perez had a twin. Perez is the one who received the promise, though, not Zerah. And Perez becomes the father of Hezron. We know nothing about Hezron. We know nothing about Ram. We know a little bit about Abinadab. Abinadab is the father-in-law of Aaron. And I don't expect you to go, whoa, the father-in-law of Aaron. How cool. It is kind of cool, though, because in Israel, a king cannot also be a priest. A king who tries to be a priest gets put to death or gets afflicted with leprosy or all kinds of God has all creative ways to punish it. But here you have in the line of Jesus, who is the son of David, it says in verse 1, there is some priestly influence in the line of David by marriage. By marriage, Aaron's father-in-law is in the line. And so you get a, it shouldn't surprise you too much that Jesus will be a prophet, a king, and a priest because there's a priest. The high priestly line is in his family tree. That leads to Nishan. Nishan, he is called in 1 Chronicles 2 verse 10, the prince of the sons of Judah. In exile, Moses appointed a leader for each of the 12 tribes. And here, in the wilderness wanderings, the prince of the tribe of Judah is in the line of Christ. That's kind of cool that already back then before there's a king of Israel, the line of the Savior is noted as being the prince of the sons of Judah. That's 1 Chronicles 2 verse 10 where he's called that, by the way. That gives way to Salmon. Salmon is how I would pronounce it, Salmon. And Salmon ends up being the father here in verse 5 of Boaz, but by Rahab. Salmon and Rahab get together. Rahab was the harlot in Jericho, remember? She acted as kind of a double agent, receiving the Jewish spies, hiding them, sending them out, lying about what happened. And she was certainly a harlot. That's how she's known as a prostitute. And she marries into the line of Jesus Christ. 
That's kind of provocative that the author, that Matthew chooses that. Remember, he chooses four women and all of them he chooses for the purpose of being provocative. And you don't have to scratch your head too long to figure out why Rahab is provocative. She was a harlot. And meanwhile, that leads to Boaz. Now, Boaz, of course, marries Ruth and that's its own story told in the book of Ruth. And here's a good time to point out that this genealogy is not comprehensive. There's jumps in the genealogy. Matthew breaks it down into three groups of 14, not because he's being complete, but because he's making it easy for you to memorize. I'm just saying. There's actually a cool song that helps you memorize this. And as I was reading it this morning, I was singing it in my mind. It was hard for me to not to read in the cadence of the song, but maybe next week I'll sing it for you. No, I love you too much to subject you to that but there is a cool song anyway there's gaps in the genealogy here is a gap because to go um, from Rahab down to Boaz you're skipping at least a century if not two and so there are some gaps in here but we finally do get to Boaz Boaz marries Ruth remember Ruth was the Moabitess and she was a widow this is a second marriage for her she comes back she immigrates to Israel because her husband was Jewish and he died and she throws her lot in with the Jewish people looking for some hope in life she had a very godly mother-in-law Naomi who took her in and showed her the way of the Lord taught her how to trust the Lord and she really threw herself at the feet of Boaz literally <laughs> and Boaz ends up marrying her they have Obed Obed will, Obed will have Jesse. What a great name. Just, uh, just marvel at the poetry of it, the symmetry of it. Beautiful name. People at Starbucks can't spell this name, but that's because they haven't read Matthew chapter 1. That's their fault. Um, and the father, Jesse, the father of David, the king. This all leads to David, of course, because the second covenant will be the Davidic covenant. We should stop there, but I want to bring our fourth woman in just this week. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. So this is the history of the Jewish people. You're not going to get a more who's who of Jewish history than this list right here. It reads like Hebrews 11, doesn't it? All the famous people in the book of Genesis, all the famous people in Israel's history leading to Jesus. What just great godly people. Uh, maybe not quite great and godly, but they are famously Jewish. They have that going for them. Now, as you go through this list, understand the promise is that the Savior will be Jewish. The promise is not that Israel will receive blessing from the Lord. The promise is that the Savior will come through Israel and the Savior will be a blessing from the Lord. And that's what you need to understand about this genealogy. This is a who's who of Israel, but the point is not that Israel will be blessed. The point is that the Savior will be blessed. Let me draw your attention to, Gen to Galatians 3, verse 16. I'll put it on the screen for you. These promises, speaking of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the promises in the book of Genesis, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular offspring it does not say and to offsprings which is not even a word I know that because when I typed it in the powerpoint it gave a little red line underneath it <laughs> offsprings isn't even a word the promise is not that all of Israel will be blessed the promise is that one person in Israel will be blessed to your offspring it says who is Christ 
was talking with some friends about the Bible Museum, and I'm sure most of you have gone, and if you haven't, you can repent of that and go. <laughs> the best part of the Bible Museum is the floor with the Bibles on it, which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to be the Bible Museum and you do one thing really well, you should do the Bibles well, and they do that exceptionally well, and that is great. For me, the most frustrating part is the Old Testament survey part where you go through the multimedia Old Testament presentation, which is really cool. I mean, there's like, you're walking through parted seas and there's a log that talks and it's just, it's an incredible multimedia experience with pretty bad theology because they make the point of it how God is going to bless Israel. The promise in Genesis 3 is that Israel will come up and then all these promises, they even make it plural to all of your offspring, to the nation Israel and all of the Jews. And that becomes the point of it. You get to the whole presentation of the Old Testament with no reference to a king, no reference to a savior, no reference to the whole point of the promise that there will be one savior and it will not be the nation Israel. It will be Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 3.16. The promise goes to the savior. He is the Christ. That's what Matthew is arguing in chapter one. Not that Abraham was blessed or Isaac was blessed or that Jacob was blessed or that Judah was blessed. The point is that the blessing went through them down the line all the way back to verse one to Jesus Christ. So the first thing we learn in this genealogy is that Jesus is a Jew. The second thing we learn is that he is a Jew with some Gentile mixed in. Now I mentioned Four women in this genealogy. There could have been 14. If you've got 14 men, you're going to have 14 women. That's how this works. <laughs> Why did he choose these four women? What's he trying to draw attention to? Well, these four women have a few things in common. The most obvious thing they have in common is that they are all Gentile. Tamar was a Canaanite. That's the point of the story in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite. Rahab was a harlot in Jericho. Boaz married Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Bathsheba, she was married to a Hittite. It seems likely that she was a Hittite. So Matthew chooses four Gentiles to bake into this, to draw your attention to the fact that in the Savior's line, there's not one, there's not two, there's not three. There is at least four Gentiles and maybe more. Very interesting that God passes the promise down through the the men who keep the Jewish ancestry going but are okay marrying Gentiles into this. Now I know this is not the point of Matthew chapter 1 but it just draws my mind to the fact that in the United States in particular through much of the last century there have been laws against interracial marriage and in many cases those laws were driven by Christians with bad theology. Christians that argued the government needed to keep the races separate and ban interracial marriage and you know interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia until the 1960s and the law stayed on the books in Virginia until what two years ago was finally struck down and removed. I mean that to me is insane. I think that race in many ways is a biological fiction. It's more of a cultural construct. But to say that the races shouldn't intermarry, I think is a very sinful attack on the the nature of the image of God in mankind. And more than that, it's an attack on the integrity of the life of Christ. His genealogy features at least four interracial marriages, at least four interracial relationships. Now, To say that races shouldn't intermarry would be to say that Jesus and this genealogy 
was corrupted in a very weird way. And I think it goes way beyond what's written. I know that's not the point of this passage, but I just wanted to give you that for free. (laughs) Moving on, the Savior will be a Jew with some Gentile. And number three, he will come from a line of serious sinners. Now, I know we all come from a line of sinners. We all come from Adam. Adam was a sinner. We're all sinners. But it seems like some of these guys tried extra hard, doesn't it? (laughs) It seems like they tried to excel at sinning. I said this reads like Hebrew 11. This is a hall of faith. But when you start looking at the stories, wow. I mean, it starts with Abraham. God tells Abraham, you're going to have a descendant. He will be the promise. What is the first thing Abraham does? He sends his wife, Sarah, to sleep with the Egyptian pharaoh. That's not a good response. This is not good. God says, I'm going to give you a blessing and it'll be through your offspring. And Abraham says, I don't have any offspring. Sarah, Pharaoh, have you guys met? What in the world? That's Genesis chapter 12. Followed by Abraham sleeping with Hagar. Another very bad idea. Followed by Abraham, as I mentioned, mortgaging his wife, Sarah, again to Abimelech, this time for a well, which ends in total shame. That's in Genesis 20. Abraham being disgraced and put to shame. And Sarah was a willing participant in at least the second of those two. They came up with this plan together, it seems. What a mess. And it keeps going on like that. I mean, Judah and Tamar, which is intentionally highlighted here. It's where he draws out that that Perez had a twin brother and their, their mother was Tamar. Well, Tamar was the mother of the twins. The father was Judah. Judah was also Tamar's father-in-law. So grandpa and dad are the same person there. <laughs> I mean, it's messed up. And by the way, at the end of that story, Genesis 38, you're dealing with the story where there's a, pro- a lady who dresses like a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law, who then gets pregnant. The father-in-law says, burner and killer. She shows the father-in-law, oh, you, actually, you accidentally left your ring and your scarlet cord with me so I can prove that you were the dad. And the father-in-law ends the story by saying, whoa, let her live because she's the righteous one. Okay. <laughs> so the woman who pretended to be a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law, she's the righteous one in the story. Got it. <laughs> Ruth, well, Rahab was a prostitute. That's obvious. Nahon was killed in the wilderness wanderings by God. Ruth was a Moabite, and Ruth was a woman of integrity and godliness, but the point is that she was a Moabite. Do you remember their story? The Moabites came from Lot sleeping with his daughter. I mean, the whole thing is a wreck. And of course, it's not politically correct to say anymore, but Bathsheba was an adulteress. All four of these women highlighting the fact that There is serious sin in the line of the Savior. So that's who Jesus comes from. That's what his family was like. How does this connect us? I'm going to give you kind of a second little outline here. uh, What the Savior will do. That's who the Savior was. Now let's talk about what he will do in light of that. Because Jesus is going to do some unexpected things in his ministry. Some surprising things. And they should not be surprising to you if you know his family. You should be prepared for them. For example, in the modern analogy, if Chelsea Clinton becomes a politician, you should not be surprised because you know her family. If one of Tom Joyce's children joins the military, you should not be surprised because you know his family. If my children turn out to be breathtakingly charming and funny and and intelligent, you should not be surprised because you know my wife. (laughs) 
the things that are so offensive in the life of Christ, you should not be surprised at them because your introduction to Christ, the very first words of this Genesis of the New Testament are describing how these features, the very things that are offensive about Christ were baked in at the beginning. First, the Savior will save through faith. He will save through faith. Again, we start with the Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Salvation has not come by works. There was nothing Abraham could do to merit salvation. There was no, he couldn't sign up for this. God chose him. God called him. In fact, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. That's what Abraham brought to this. <laughs> Abraham shows up. What can I do to help this? Go to sleep, Abraham. That is enough. <laughs> if he would have had anything more to do, he probably would have messed it up. The rest of his life seems to show. This is the nature of salvation. It does not come through works. It comes through faith. Abraham believed God when God called him and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Abraham did. He had faith, but he did not have works. That's repeated in Genesis 12, then again in Genesis 15, then a third time in case you missed it in Genesis 17. Salvation comes through faith. And this is repeated over and over and over again. This is with Jacob. Why does the promise go to Jacob and not Esau? The New Testament lets you know so that you would learn the doctrine of election, that it does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but upon God who shows mercy. Therefore it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And this was written before the twins had done anything good or evil. God chose Jacob, not because he knew Jacob would turn out to be good. Of course, if you've met Jacob, you know he's a treacherous villain. <laughs> God chose him so that you would learn the nature of saving grace. That it does not come to those who work. It does not come to those who run. It comes to those whom God chooses. And he chooses them through faith. That's why we're called children of Abraham. Not because we're Jewish. Not because we've done the same kind of works as Abraham. But because we possess the same faith as Abraham. Galatians 3.18. Earlier we looked at Galatians 3.16. Here's Galatians 3.18. For if the inheritance, meaning the promise of the seed, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do you notice as we go through this list, there's no mention of the Mosaic covenant. The third covenant in the Old Testament, you have the mention of Abraham's covenant, of David's covenant, no mention of the Mosaic Covenant because that's the covenant of works. That's how Israel is supposed to live and they break it. The Savior will keep it. The Savior will keep the Mosaic Law perfectly. The rest of the Gospel of Matthew will identify that. But he has a gospel that is a gospel of grace and faith. He saves through faith. The point of this, you can't mess up this genealogy. The people who are in it couldn't thwart it despite their best efforts. They also couldn't make it happen. Sometimes they tried to make it happen and they failed miserably at that too. That's the nature of God's promises. You can't mess them up, but you also can't make them happen. What, what can you do? If God gives you a promise and it's gonna happen, you can't mess it up and you can't make it happen, what's your response to it? You believe it by faith. That's the gospel message. That's bothered the Jews so much about Jesus' preaching that he would not entertain their works, righteousness, and religion. He had no need for it. But that shouldn't surprise you because it comes from this line of people that did not have works themselves. They only had faith. Secondly, that Jesus not just will 
save through faith, but he'll save the world. He'll be the savior of the world. This goes back to Genesis 22, that Abraham will, God tells Abraham, I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring, singular, through him, as the stars of heaven, the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring, in your offspring, singular, remember, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, Jesus will be the savior of the world. It gets so confusing to some people because they hear the phrase savior of the world and they try to universalize that and you know, it messes up your understanding of atonement and salvation and the nature of unbelief is a sin. What does the New Testament mean when it calls Jesus the savior of the world? It means that he is the fulfillment of Genesis 22, that the nations of the world are blessed through Christ. It means he's the only savior in the whole world. That other people groups don't get their own saviors. There's not a savior for, for those in Mexico and those in France and those in Russia that is different than the savior from the Jewish people. Jesus is the only savior for the world. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your national background is, none of that matters. Jesus is the only savior for the entire world. Now that is so bothersome to the Pharisees. Remember, they were opposed to Jesus, continually reaching to the unclean, grafting in people. This becomes offensive in the church because in the church, the Jews, remember the, the analogy the New Testament uses is that Israel is a tree. Israel's the tree. The branches of Israel are not bearing fruit. So they are broken off and Gentiles are grafted in. And so the church is predominantly Gentile. There are Jews in the church, praise God, but the church is predominantly Gentile because right now the Jews have been broken off, Gentiles grafted in. And you look at this tree and you're like, whoa, the, the root is, the, the stump is Jewish and the, the tree is Jewish and the fruit is Gentile. That's so weird. But then you dig under the ground a little bit and you look and lo and behold, the roots are Gentile too. There are at least four of the Gentile names in the roots. And so it should not surprise you that some of the fruit is also Gentile. That is why Matthew draws attention to these four Gentile women. It lets you know that Jesus already at this point is establishing himself as the savior of the world. So first, the savior will save through faith. Second, he will save the world. He'll be the only savior the world will know. And thirdly, the savior will be born under extraordinary circumstances. And I spent a lot of time this week trying to think of what euphemism to use there. And I came with, up with extraordinary circumstances. <laughs> because this line of people that we just looked at, there is some sin. But the major sin in this line is sexual sin. And the major sexual sin in this line is devoted to passing on the seed. Beyond that, even those that don't involve sin, there's unusual circumstances around the birth of their children. In fact, let's go through the list again in our last few minutes with that grid in mind. What do all these names have in common? Well, let's talk about them for a second. Abraham was how old when he had, his, when he had Isaac? A hundred! And Sarah was 90. Wow. Does that count as an extraordinary circumstance in birth? I think so. I think so. 
But anyway, it happened. And there was other sin involved with it. But that God miraculously blessed them with a child because that was his promise. The child was Isaac. Do you remember that Isaac needed to find a wife and he wanted a wife through the covenant and so he sent his slave out to go find him a covenant-keeping wife? Do you remember what he had his slave do in Genesis 24 before he went out to find the wife? He had his slave swear an oath to Isaac that he would find a wife and he swore the oath by grabbing Isaac's own mark of circumcision. What? I'm very happy for handshakes in our own culture. <laughs> handshakes rock. <laughs> okay, that's weird. <laughs> and why is it that way? To demonstrate the importance of passing on the seed in that way <laughs> through extraordinary circumstances. That's the best word I got. What about Jacob? Jacob needs a wife. Accidentally marries the wrong one. Gets a second wife, Leah and Rachel. He can't tell them apart. And he can't tell them apart under the weirdest of circumstances. You can read that story on your own. Are you kidding me? You can't tell them apart? What a mess. <laughs> but that's going to count as extraordinary circumstances for their birth. That leads to Judah, the fourth child. Judah, do you remember, had three children. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur was the oldest. Ur married Tamar. Ur was exceedingly sinful and God killed him. And you think in this kind of story, what do you have to do to be exceedingly sinful? I don't know. It doesn't say, but he must have been a very good sinner because God struck him dead. And so that leaves Tamar single and Judah going, we got to keep the promise going. So Judah tells Onan, his second son, to sleep with Tamar to father a child. But Onan refused to do so effectively. That's how I'll say that. And if you want to read the story yourself, by all means, read it yourself. But don't say I didn't warn you. So Onan refuses to sleep with Tamar in an effective way. And so God kills him. Well, now two children are dead, leaving only Shelah. Shelah is too young to sleep with Tamar. And so Judah tells Tamar, dress like a widow and live in the corner of my house. And I'll get you when Shelah is old enough to marry you. And then he forgets about her. How do you forget that you have your daughter-in-law dressed like a widow living in the corner of your house waiting for your only son to get old enough? He does. I don't know how, but it happens. And then Judah's own wife dies. And do you remember what he does when his wife dies? To comfort himself, he goes to sleep with a prostitute. And so his forgotten widowed daughter-in-law dresses up like the prostitute to sleep with him. Gets pregnant has twins. That's how the promise goes through. Can we call that an extraordinary circumstance? I think so. Ruth, so badly wanted to be married, needed to be married for her own life and well-being. But there's no one to marry her. She's a Moabite living in Israel and she takes advantage of a provision in the law, the same provision that Onan refused, by the way, and was killed for it. Ruth takes advantage of that and marries Boaz. And that's a crazy story in Ruth chapter 4. Also demonstrating the extraordinary nature of this Bathsheba's child. But God killed Bathsheba's child and then gave her another one to take his place. All of this is preparing you for the fact that when the Savior comes, he too will be born under extraordinary circumstances. When you get to the virgin birth, you are not allowed to go, oh my goodness, how could somebody from this family be born under strange circumstances? <laughs> Have you not read the family tree? You guys are going to have Thanksgiving dinner this week, and some of you are going to have Thanksgiving dinner with some very weird people. 
and you're going to be around the table. First of all, don't cause conflict at Thanksgiving dinner by talking about politics, please. Cause conflict at Thanksgiving dinner by talking about Jesus Christ. Let the arguments be on him. But back to this. You're going to be around a table with some weird people. Could you imagine this Thanksgiving dinner with this family? Here's my dad and here's my grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) These things are designed to be intentionally scandalous. Matthew chooses them to make them scandalous. To draw your attention that the gospel will come to the world through the taint of scandal, through this surprising ancestry, scandalous relations. It should make you say, can God use these people to bring the gospel into the world? And the answer is yes, he can. Can God use these extraordinary sinners to bring the gospel in the world? Yes. Can he use you to bring the gospel into the world? Yes. Are you too sinful? Are you too sinful to advance the gospel in the world? No. (laughs) Are you too sinful? Yes. Are you too sinful to advance the gospel in the world? No. (laughs) If God can use these people, he can use you too. And by the way, there is another chord running through all this. These people, one after another, were going to war against the world. The world was dark and the world had one way of living, one Worldview, and these people, one after another, held on to the promise that God was going to send a savior to them. These people lived in pursuit of the king, even through their sin, even through their weird relationships, even through their strange ancestry. They pursued Abraham, believed, and left Ur, knowing that God had a better kingdom for him. The Israelites were driven from Israel to Egypt, believing that God was their vision, that they would see God and he would establish them in the kingdom. They left Egypt to the wilderness, believing that God would be their real king. They come in, the walls of Jericho fall down and they go wherever God directs them, believing that God will be their king. I hope you see yourself as the rightful heirs of these promises. That you're going in the world that tells you to live one way, believe one way, act one way, and you're going into the world with a totally different mindset because your eyes are focused on this God, the God who is faithful to his promises, the God who does not want you conformed to this world, who does not want you to love the things the world loves, the God who wants you to love him. Let him be your vision and live for him. He can touch a genealogy and make it spill out grace everywhere. He can touch your life and make you a testimony of grace as well. Lord, we're thankful that you promised to bring a savior in the world and you did so. You did so according to your will and in your way. We're grateful that you are the high king of heaven, that you reign over this world. When the world had no kingdoms, you were the king. When you were working through Israel, you were their true king. When Isaac was wondering where to look for a wife, he looked back to your people. When Jacob had children, he had an unwavering belief that you would be their Lord, that you would use them to build your people and fulfill your covenant. Even Judah, through his sin, he believed the promise that from him the scepter would never pass. From his children would always be the king. Lord, let that be our vision as well. 
Let our eyes grow dark to the kingdoms of this world. Let our hearts grow cold to the kingdoms of this world, fleeting as they are. And let our hearts be hot with a love for your kingdom. Let our eyes be blind to the powers of this world. And let you and your glory and your majesty be the one thing we look at this week. We pray that you would do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.